0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Heads up everyone, today I'm rolling out a new feature on Unconfirmed, a weekly news recap. This summer, I conducted a survey to find out what you listeners wanted, and a number of you said you'd be interested in a weekly news recap on the show. Since I've already been writing up what I think are the top stories every week for my email newsletter, it was natural to extend that to the end of every unconfirmed episode. So today, after I close out with my guest, be sure to stick around for the last few minutes of the show for my week in crypto recap. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Download the Crypto.com app today. For a lot of crypto fans, it's hard to find one place where you can trade, plan and discuss crypto strategy. Get
1: started with eToro and the world's number one social trading platform. CypherTrace cutting edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks and regulators themselves use CipherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Zachary Fallon, principal at
0: Blakemore Fallon. Welcome, Zach.
2: Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been on the show before, but for those of you for those who don't remember, you are a former SEC staffer and the author of the Regs A job Zach crowdfunding rules. And this week, the crypto world was I don't think Incredulous is overstating it, (laughs) that Block.One got away with a $4 billion year-long ICO that advertised itself in Times Square, and they paid a mere $24 million to the SEC for it and didn't even need to register EOS tokens as a security, which is pretty different from the outcome for some other coin issuers, such as Paragon and AirFox, which also held ICOs. So why do you think that was the outcome in this case?
2: Sure. Um, So if we take a step back, the block one, the SEC's order against block one was limited to the ERC-20 token that it sold as part of the ICO and and not related to the EOS um, mainnet token. And so I think there's a distinction here that that's important because the um, yes, they raised a lot of money in what was purported to be or perhaps intended to be an overseas offering for which Regulation S was unavailable, ultimately they violated the securities laws with respect to that offering of the ERC-20 token. And the SEC's order is sort of cabined to that to that issue alone, it doesn't really address the, the issuance of EOS mainnet token.
0: And so since it doesn't address that, what do you think it means for EOS? Like, should we now be worried about the EOS tokens? Or do you mean, or do you think that that means that likely the SEC will not pursue anything against the EOS tokens?
2: I think it's hard to say. I mean, you know, you can read whatever you want into the silence, I suspect, right? And, you know, I see a lot of people out there suspecting that that means uh, EOS has a a pass. I think that's um, a bit of an aggressive posture. I wouldn't necessarily view it that way. I think the The SEC's order is really limited to the four corners of what it discusses. And it doesn't to the extent it doesn't address it, we shouldn't we shouldn't sort of read in uh what we you know outcomes we would like or things we would surmise to be the case. Um so it's it it's I know it can be frustrating, but we're kind of left with what the order says and and whatever else it doesn't say is is open for speculation.
0: All right. Yes. And there was plenty of speculation, which we'll actually get to a little bit more in a moment. But first, I also wanted to ask about this waiver that Block 1's legal firm, Cooley, requested for Block 1. What was the waiver for and what will having that waiver enable Block 1 to do in the future?
2: Sure. So, you know, settlements generally, like the one that Block 1 entered into, are highly negotiated. There's no reason to expect that Block 1 was any different, right? This was probably a process that involved not only these, the staff of the division of enforcement related to the offering, um, sorry, the order side of things, but also the division of corporation finance with respect to the waiver side of things. And, and what the waiver what the waiver addresses is the the potentiality that Block One could be disqualified from the ability to rely on exemptions from registration. That uh, companies typically rely on when raising company uh, raising capital privately, like Regulation D or Regulation A. And, and the reason for that is that Regulation A has historically had a disqualification provision. In after the adoption of the Dodd Frank Act, those those disqualification provisions or, or some or ones like them were added to Regulation D. And so both Regulation A and Regulation D have bad actor disqualification provisions, which prevent companies and certain uh, parties like directors who are, are subject to commission orders, a cease and desist order, as an example, like the one that Block One was entered uh, was entered in, against Block One, prevents them from from being able to rely on those exemptions on a going forward basis. And as you can imagine, without capital, companies die, particularly startups. Block One is is an interesting case because it's not like they were starved for capital, or you know they shouldn't be, right? With a four billion dollar raise. Um, but the waiver process is really not one based so much on the the capital needs of the company, but rather based on the regulatory requirements specified in the, in the rules. And, and here, the requirement is that Block 1 had made a showing of good cause that it wasn't necessary under the circumstances to uh, for those exemptions to be denied. Um, you can read, as you said, you can read the, the good cause arguments in, in Cooley's waiver application, and you can see what What case they made for why they they are demonstrating good cause. I think part of it is this ongoing, um, this ongoing engagement with the staff to the extent that they issue or distribute digital assets going forward. Uh, so that there is a multi-factor analysis, Uh, but that sort of waiver process happens with the Division of Corporation Finance. They have delegated authority to uh, issue waivers. The commission, of course, can issue them as well. But the, the order itself, the substantive cease and desist order, typically lies with enforce- the Division of Enforcement. And those two things, kind of because you're negotiating a package settlement, they, they work hand in hand. And so um, the reason you may have a, a, a the the settlement on the cease and desist side and the factors and, and limitations that are apply to that kind of work in tandem with the waiver side so that the parties at the end of the day get together and um, agree that... Okay, we, you know this is this is this this is our settlement proposal, and part and parcel of that will be that we can continue to raise money going forward if we need to. You know, there's not necessarily fraud here. So, and as I said, they've demonstrated good cause as described in the letter, and they got the waiver as a result.
0: Yeah. It, it, Catherine Wu released one of her famous annotated versions of the letter. And, um, I don't remember her comments, but, you know, she <laughs> did say things about how her jaw was on the floor and stuff. And when I read the letter, I viewed it as one big, uh, way of saying, like, the adults are in the room now because it kind of went into detail on, you know, the different, uh, new positions that had been filled in the background of those people. Um Well, one other thing, though, is just when you talked about how, you know, it's not clear really what this means for EOS tokens and stuff like that. I did see one person on crypto Twitter, Jake Chervinsky, a lawyer at Compound Finance, uh, who uh, previously was a securities lawyer. He said that he does not typically see where there's like two different actions against the same issuer at different times that if they were to have acted against eos he thinks that what they would have done it at the same time and i mean he did admit it was speculation but do you agree that that is less common
2: well i would say that the question of who is the issuer is an important one because block 1 was clearly the issuer of the rc20 token whether or not block 1 was the issuer of the eos mainnet token is a different question and i think that you know at least as i understand the way that network was launched And the EOS mainnet was launched, is that it wasn't necessarily the same parties. And so I think there, the question of who is the issuer and what were they issuing, that's a very, those are obviously the questions. And I think with respect to the token that uh, the ESC 20 token that Block One issued, um, you see the action, you see the order, you see the result. Um, I don't see any order or anything that addresses the, the issuance of the EOS mainnet token and how that came into existence and, and the implications for whatever parties issued that. Now, I'm not saying that there there will be implications, just that, that there's the potential here for a different issuer issuing something, uh, something different. And we know whether or not and how Block One impacts that analysis of EOS or what people were expecting when they, um, Received EOS and how they received it, and their ongoing efforts of, of whomever they are expecting to rely on. Um, that those are important considerations. Those are the, the considerations you would, at a staff level, and is that any securities lawyer would have to sort of an, analyze in and figuring out the the import of this as it relates to EOS.
0: And for Kick, which um, obviously is another company that issued a cryptocurrency. Via an ICO and um, eventually was sued by the SEC. They closed their app last week, but they apparently will continue development on the Kin token. So, what did you say is the overall significance of these two outcomes together? You know, kick on the one hand and uh, Block One on the other.
2: Well, I mean, the Block One one, I, I suspect, has been um, has been probably brewing for a while. And so, I think this is just. Uh, I think it's a you know this is an accident of history and timing and, and the fact that kick uh, announced what they did last week and this came out this week in, in addition to the the, the nebulous settlement um, so it's it's hard it's hard to say I mean I, I do think generally what we're trending towards right is the is that the issuance the issuances of digital assets in initial coin offerings that predated um, Last year are, were problematic under the securities laws, and there is going to be continued remediation that needs to happen to the market um, in order to, to sort of get this right on a going forward basis. Um, it's unfortunate what what happened to to Kick if they had to close the app, as as I understand it. Um, but that's sort of the nature of the nature of, of entering the space and trying to operate within this space and with you know with that's fraught with, with risk and uncertainty.
0: So we're going to discuss the nebulous settlement in a moment, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible.
1: Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stable coins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean and that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly www.cyphertrace.com slash crypto clean. eToro gives you access to the most popular crypto assets on the market,
0: and its virtual trading and discussion features let you discuss and test trading strategies with a community of over 11 million other traders. And headline news, they have officially launched in the USA eToro offers the smartest trading tools and the ability to connect with the best traders around the world. Their trading fees are transparent and exceedingly low too, and it's available in one easy to use app. Get started at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com and build your crypto portfolio the smart way today. Back to my conversation with Zach Fallon. So uh, as you mentioned, there was this other SEC announcement about nebulous. What happened there?
2: Well, Nebulous uh, offered and sold securities back in 2014 and 2015 in in violation of of the securities laws. Um, I don't think that that's really disputed as far as as far as uh, an out as what happened. Uh, they they clearly offered at a time and didn't appreciate the import of, of the securities laws. And this was this was early, relatively early on in the space, so not surprising that there was a, a Section Five violation there. Um, since that time, they've they've engaged counsel and conducted uh, compliant offerings going forward of, of those same securities. So I think what you have there is uh, just really a traditional, uh, violative sale of securities, and the settlement reflects that. Uh, and and on a going forward basis, they similar to block one will engage with staff before they issue any more digital assets to the extent they want to continue to rely on on the waiver that was issued at the same time as as the settlement, uh, the cease and desist order was issued.
0: And so Nebulous obviously now has the SIA coins that are trading, and they did release a blog post that essentially said that the SEC did kind of like thoroughly vet what was going on with the SIA coins, but then they didn't ultimately take any action on that. Um, it sort of stopped short of saying like the SIA coins are in the clear, but I was curious to know kind of how you took, you know, the fact that they the coins themselves weren't part of the action.
2: Yeah. And I, I think this kind of relates back to the block one in that you, we we shouldn't read into the silence or the, the lack of discussion. I, I take Jake's point and, and it's a good one. But the fact that the coins are not discussed at all is is a glaring, in some ways, a glaring omission given what people understand to be that network and how it operates. So uh, a glaring omission like that I don't know. You can read that either way. I suppose the one the one thing I think I the one thing I did notice in the settlement order is that it it, it mentioned specifically that Nebulous did not intend for uh, Sia stocks, Sia notes, or Sia funds to be be mediums of exchange on the Sia network. Now, whether or not that you can read that to suggest that it meant for the Sia coins to be mediums of exchange, and they're fine. Um, again, you'd have to read that sentence in because it's not there. But I think the that that sort of indicates to a certain extent the staff's position as to with respect to those three stock notes and funds um, not being mediums of exchange
0: so going forward if you were to be uh, you know working on a project that you think could use a token and you were to think of how you might release it to the crowd Knowing what you know now about the various actions the SEC has taken, how would you do it?
2: Well, I mean, I think I think the developers of digital assets have a lot more tools at their disposal than they than they've ever had. Right? They have more tools today than they had four or five years ago. In, in that they have additional token standards that have been developed that address potential securities loss concerns of, um, of fungibility or, or tradability, aftermarket tradability, the ability to bake in restrictions. One of the things that that Block One uh, tripped up on was that uh, you know at least according to the SEC's order was that they were the tokens were immediately um, tradable in the U.S. in the aftermarket. Now you can you can build in bells and whistles to on a technical level that prevent those types of things based on token standards or based on your own um, based on your own implementation of a of of a of an asset. And so I think developers of digital assets have a lot more tools at their disposal that they need to use to avoid some of these concerns you don't need to just issue erc20 tokens all the time those are the ones that uh that a lot of these orders are based off of and for you know not necessarily without good reason from a securities law standpoint because of the way they can fly around in the aftermarket and the, the easily the way they can be easily integrated in in digital asset trading platforms so i think that that what you'd want to do if you're developing digital assets going forward is to really think about the toolset you have available from a technical side to avoid some of these concerns and then there's the obvious concerns of the howey test right you don't want to be promoting uh, aftermarket tradability you don't want to be promoting uh, the potential for uh, the asset you're selling to appreciate in value and certainly not on your efforts so there's the general things that you can avoid which which aren't shocking to anyone who's been in the space but as I said, I think I think people have a lot more tools than they they realize. And, and oftentimes when I speak to technical developers, they say, "Oh, but we, you know, we can't do that." And and I'm just you know, it kind of reminds me of a teacher I had in high school who says, you know, who used to say that uh, "can't" means "won't." And and I think that there's sometimes <laughs> that there's the ability of people to do things, and they just don't want to do them. Uh, oftentimes, uh, it's because of these financial incentives. The financial incentives really. Really screwed up the market in some level because it, it created this moral hazard, um, that, uh, is hard to, was, is, was really hard to avoid. And I think as a developer, you can, you can avoid those now by just by with the discipline that comes from appreciating these types of actions.
0: Yeah, well, so while all this has been going on, obviously, the last time you and I spoke, it was because of Blockstack going the route of doing an ICO via a Reg A Plus offering. And essentially what that means is that the Stacks tokens that they sold are going to be securities for the foreseeable future. Side note, the amount that they raised is less than the uh, uh, penalty that <laughs> Block 1 is going to pay. But anyway, um, <laughs> so it, it, you know between what happened with Kik, you know being sued by the SEC, Block 1 getting off with this settlement and, and Nebulous as well, and then Blockstack now going this route, do you feel like there are still gray areas that remain in how securities laws uh, will apply to token issuance in the US? Or do you feel like this sort of covers things and people should have a good sense of what to do going forward?
2: I think the SEC has been largely uh, judicious and effective in delivering the message it needed to deliver to the market to appreciate what the implications are of issuing digital assets. Uh, you'll probably see more cease and desist orders coming out and you'll probably see more companies going the, the reggae route like Blockstack. And so I think um, there are, you know, the outstanding questions are really how, How can a token that is issued, uh, you know, can basically, uh, some people say morph into something that is, is no longer maybe start as a security, but, but eventually over time, no longer uh, be considered a security. And that is sort of the outstanding question for me. Um, That's a really interesting question intellectually. And I think there, you know, because it implicates not just the law, but also the technology. And so there's some, there's some really interesting questions there. I think, um, as long as people appreciate the risks here and build with um, securities laws in mind, then I think they'll largely be fine because there are ways to avoid it. Um, There's nothing wrong with avoiding the securities laws. You are complying with the securities laws. You're not not complying with the securities laws if you avoid them. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But to the extent that what you're doing implicates the securities laws, appreciating how to navigate them is just, is just key and fundamental responsibility of anyone building in the space. So, um, there are ways out of it, and, and there are ways um, if you're going to do certain things, you can't avoid it. And so you just you know need to be adult about it and appreciate the space you're in and what it is you're trying to build. And um, if you have to rejigger the network or its incentive systems to get it right and get to a place that works for you as a company, then so be it.
0: So one other bit of news I wanted to ask you about was that this week, we also saw a bunch of crypto exchanges, including Coinbase, Kraken, Circle, and Bittrex band together to form the Crypto Rating Council. And a bunch of people in the crypto community were kind of derisive of this effort and said it presented a massive conflict of interest because, of course, exchanges have this incentive to list as many tokens as possible and therefore to give favorable ratings where a regulator might not and because you used to work at the sec for so long i did wonder uh, how you thought this would be taken by the sec
2: yeah i mean i think um (laughs) i mean my you know my gut reaction at the, the first time i heard it was a bit of this it's the fox guarding the hen house sort of thing but 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 there are you know there are certainly that's not just it right there's another side to this which is that um you have to start somewhere. And these, to the extent that uh, these platforms are getting together and trying to socialize internally and come to a better result internally amongst themselves so that they are, they the standard of deviation sort of is, is not so great among them. Then I think that's a great thing. There's nothing, there should be nothing wrong with that. I guess the question is why, why publicize it? Why, you know, if you're going to do that sort of thing, that's great. Um, there's not, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, and having putting outputs out there with respect to your one to fives that can be scrutinized, um, is also valuable because it starts the conversation. So the communication aspect of this, uh, the re-socializing among, I think is, is these are good things. Um, but I think there are problems with it as well. And, um, you know, typically, you know, we have uh, nationally recognized statistical ratings organizations, the credit rating agencies that that are not the same people who are issuing um, products that are so rated uh, for a reason. Right. And I, I don't think that the council is really suggesting that. I think they're just trying to get tools out there for uh, discussion purposes. But I think it you know, they're obviously going to get shot out about it because um, because of their their place in the space uh, and that's sort of their their own moral hazard here, with with um, putting numbers out that that implicate the assets they're they they are themselves uh, listing. But um, so I'm kind of of two minds of it. I mean, I think somebody's got to start this conversation, and so to the said they're doing that, great. But uh, at the same time, at the end of the day, they you know I think a little more independence and separation, if people are actually going to rely on these for any for any reason, needs to happen. I don't think they're the best people to sort of have people, others relying on those ratings for for any real purpose other than just for information.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I really was reminded of the financial crisis, the role that the ratings agencies played, and how essentially, in a way, those, frankly, ended up being meaningless. But we'll see how this plays out. It may not be the case here. Um, Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you on Unconfirmed.
2: Oh, it's great to be back. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Laura.
0: Don't forget, guys, next up is the news recap. Stick around for the inaugural issue of This Week in Crypto after this short break. Crypto.com. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card loaded with perks with up to 5% back and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 8% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, ETH, XRP, and up to 12% per year on stable coins. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the inaugural edition of my weekly news recap. This one is titled, Unfair Win. First headline, PayPal to back out of Libra Association, other members jittery. In Libra land, the FT reports that PayPal is about to quit Libra. Reportedly, all the other members showed up at a scheduled meeting in Washington, except for the payments company. Calibra head David Marcus formally served as president there. This follows on some news earlier this week by the Wall Street Journal that Visa and MasterCard are reconsidering whether or not to participate. Meanwhile, perhaps unsurprisingly, the banks, through the Federal Advisory Council, told the Federal Reserve that they didn't like Libra and thought it would create, quote, a shadow banking system. Second story, two house reps pushed the Fed for a digital dollar. Despite its troubles, Libra is still giving governments pause, and not from a regulatory perspective. House Reps French Hill and Bill Foster wrote a letter to Fed Chair Jay Powell, asking for the Fed's view on creating a digital dollar. They wrote, quote, We are concerned that the primacy of the U.S. dollar could be in long-term jeopardy from wide adoption of digital fiat currencies. Third headline, crypto wallet startup blockchain is struggling with exec departures. The information reports that Crypto Wallet Blockchain is experiencing a spate of executive departures. Chief Operating Officer Liana Dule Guzman and Chris Lavery are reportedly leaving the firm. Meanwhile, the company has struggled with its business model given that its flagship product is free. It only recently launched an exchange, The Pit. Next up, Ledger X accuses CFTC of malfeasance. Ledger ex-CEO Paul Chow tweeted a series of eyebrow-raising statements hostile toward the CFTC last weekend. Quote, no more kissing the ring, he said. And when allegedly asked by the CFTC to remove the tweets, he instead tweeted, no dice. Deny a complete application from us. I dare you, CFTC. In a later tweet storm, he explained that the delay in Ledger X's approval for its futures product appears to have been due to the agency, specifically then-chairman John- Christopher John Giancarlo's preference for backed to be first. Next story, The Skinny on the Fairwind Ponzi. There was a Medium post this week, which is yet another lesson in how this technology is still highly experimental. The Fairwind Ponzi enabled the admins to drain the contract, plus had a vulnerability that enabled scammers to front-run users attempting to deposit into the contract. So that way, when ETH was deposited, that would instead be associated with the hacker rather than the person depositing the ETH. When word first got out, the funds went pretty quickly, as a graph tweeted by Gnosis's Martin Koppelman shows. Fun bits. This is the last story. This is how I end every weekly newsletter. Bitcoin OG Jared Kenna explains why he's lost love for Bitcoin. In an interview with Bloomberg, Jared Kenna, who founded the Bitcoin exchange Trade Hill back in the day, said that when he started in Bitcoin, quote, all we talked about was things that actually had substance, and very few people were talking about making money. And now the only thing people focus on is making money. Also, check the show notes for my 2016 Forbes article about how hackers stole millions in Bitcoin from Kenna. That's it for this week's news. Finally, be sure to check out this week's Unchained with Emily Parker of Longhash. She gives the inside scoop on what's really going on with crypto in China, Singapore and Japan, and why not is all as it appears. And if any of you will be at DEF CON next week, I hope to see you there. To learn more about the topics that Zach and I discussed earlier in the show, as well as the stories from this week's news recap, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.